the thing about Welcome Back Sunday, as Dan said, it's a, just a, a Sunday where we, um, in a sense, there's a sense of, oh, the fall's here, we're back into the routine of life, uh, holidays are over pretty well, and, and structure returns. And so for the last number of years, five or six years, I've, I've, uh, we've, we've done Welcome Back Sunday, and, and there's been a message that, that we've um, talked about for Welcome Back Sunday. It's never an easy message for me to prepare, and I don't know, maybe one day I should give suggestions out uh, to the congregation about three months ahead of time and say, what should I preach on for Welcome Back Sunday? It's not like you can go to a Bible concordance. Some of you know what a Bible concordance is. It's a, it's a, a book that has every word of the Bible in it. And you can go there and you could say, look up prayer and you can find every reference to prayer. So I thought, well, I'm going to go to the Bible concordance. I'm going to look up Welcome Back. And there's nothing in the concordance for Welcome Back. So I thought, well, I'm stymied there. Let's figure out what we can do next. So then I thought, well, you know, we've, we've just gone through as a church a whole two and a half years of, of a constitution, um, real exciting stuff, but it's really important stuff. And so we've just gone through a new constitution. It was all passed on August the 31st. Um, in that constitution is a little bit of our structure of our church. Uh, there's our statement of faith that's in there. And we also have what's, um, what we've called a church covenant which we are going to encourage people to read and to think about and to embrace uh, in the days and the weeks and the years which are to come. So as I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, that really helps explain a little bit about Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. And you might be new here. You might be, have been coming for uh, quite a while. You might be wondering what this church is all about. Is what, What's it like compared to other churches? Aren't all churches the same? Well, the reality is, is no two churches are exactly the same. There are differences. There are little nuances that, that separate one church from another. And so you could go to 12 or 15 churches in the Oceanside area, and you will not find one church that is identical to another church. So I thought, well, what is it that makes, um, what are some of the things that stand out here for us at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church? We're a wide range of people. One of the things that I appreciated about coming here when I, when I came here about nine years ago was that there was such a broad theological heritage here in this church. We are not strictly a Baptist church. We are a Baptist church by name. We are a Baptist church by practice. Um, but we're not strictly a Baptist church in who attends. So we have people that would come from the Christian Reformed spectrum, the, the Canadian Reformed spectrum. And um, from, on the theological um, uh, scale and on the conservative scale, they're sort of over here. I'm really going to get in trouble now. I've started something that I'm not going to get out of. And then we've got sort of uh, United, and we've got sort of Anglican, and then we've got sort of Mennonite, then we've got sort of Alliance, and then sort of way over here we've got the Charismatics. And we've got everything in that mix that comes to our church. And, and so there can be quite a difference of opinion, and yet there still is things that tie us together as a church and sort of explain what it is that we do here. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll talk about tonight for a little while what our church believes. Because I think that's helpful if you're considering attending this church, or you've been attending for a little while and you don't really know what we believe, then maybe it's helpful to talk about what our church believes. Now, even that phrase is a little bit of a strange phrase, our church. We don't really own it, and it's not sort of the exclusive rights of Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. We refer to our church sort of as a sort of a slang, I guess, because really this is Christ's church. This is not our church at all. And in our statement of faith, uh, or in our, in our church constitution, we have um, a leadership structure in there. And at the top of that leadership structure is Christ, the head of the church. 
And that's really important to remember that in the end of the day, there is no man or no woman that is over this church as a final authority. Christ is the final authority of the church. He is the head of the church. But nonetheless, we still say, well, I'm going to our church tonight. Um, So I understand that we use that kind of language. I was even thinking about this phrase, what we believe. It's kind of a a strange phrase, I think, because uh, does it mean that other churches believe something different? Well, yes. Um, it doesn't mean that every church believes something different, that there is nothing that sort of unites them or ties them together. But it seems like there are little nuances of difference between one church and another church. I think any church, to be a true church, at the very least, has to say that its foundation is the Word of God. 66 books of the Bible. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. I think if there's one more thing I say before we look at these points, quickly tonight, is that I would say, um, and I embrace and I believe, that if you read our statement of faith, we would be a Reformed Baptist church. And think, well, what in the world does that mean, a Reformed Baptist church? Well, Baptist is self-explanatory. You can, that's why we have a, a baptismal tank here and we baptize people. Um, we're a church, we're a people of uh, believers. But Reformed may be, seen, may be a little bit different for some of us. Reformed really flipped us back to a period of time about 15th, 16th century when there was what we know as the Reformation that took place. This is a very quick summary of the Reformation. But, but out of the Reformation was sort of a returning of the church back to its essential roots. And one of those essential roots was a return to the Bible as the final authority in the people's lives, in the church's life. And I think that without doubt then we would be a Reformed church because we believe that the Bible is the foundation of all that we do, all that we teach, all that we say, how we live our lives. Probably another uh, uh, um, emphasis that would come out of uh, Reformation thinking and Reformation theology would be the sovereignty of God as opposed to the sovereignty of man. And so we would say that, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a couple of minutes, but here in this church, we would say that we believe that God is sovereign. And there's a way that we describe today what sort of took place back in the 15th and 16th centuries, we would describe it with sort of five solas. Um, Sola means alone in Latin. And there's five solas that have been written up by by people over the last number of years to sort of summarize again the Reformation, Reformation thinking and theology. So you would have um, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That that is our guide to life, is scripture alone. alone. You would have sola Christa, which means Christ alone, and that we are saved entirely and only through the finished final work of Christ. And so our salvation is not rooted in anything that we bring to the table. It's rooted entirely in the finished work of Christ, sola Christos. We would also have sola gratia, and that means by grace alone. It's another aspect of salvation. We are not saved by anything that we do. We are saved entirely by the grace of God at work in our hearts and lives. We would say um, sola fide, which is by faith alone. We don't bring any works to the table. There's nothing we contribute to our salvation. It is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. And then the final um, sola would be sola de gloria, which means all the glory goes to God. And that would be maybe a more accurate summing of the Reformation. So Reformation. So we take all of those, and those would be woven through our statement of faith and what we would believe and what we would teach here at Parksville um, Fellowship Baptist Church. 
I'm not going to go through our whole statement of faith. It's a big statement of faith, and I'd encourage you to go read the statement of faith. Just so you know, a statement of faith is not our final authority. Our statement of faith is, is a statement, it's a description of, of sort of some of the big themes that are contained in the Bible of how we summarize those big themes. In the end of the day, we always put our trust in the Bible, not in our statement of faith. But our statement of faith is a guide to how we interpret the Bible here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. So I, just, I, want, I want us to understand that, first of all, as I say, I'm going to give a summary of the statement of faith. I hope it's also a summary of the Bible. Secondly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to back up all the seven points that we're going to make tonight, and we'll make them quick. Don't, don't start panicking. You, probably that's not the best thing to do in a, in a talk is say how many points you've got, because people start looking at their clock when you're at point two. Um, but I want to back them all up by, by words of Jesus. And I probably need to explain that a little bit as well. Um, first of all, it's not that I believe that the words of Jesus are any more authoritative for our life than any other word in the Scripture. Um, but there are some who, who, who will say, well, if Jesus says it, then I'll believe it. Um, you know, that, uh, I, I, you know and as they're searching for faith, as they're wrestling through issues of, of life and Christianity, they will say, well, I will embrace what Jesus says but I'm not sure about that Paul guy. I'm not sure about that Isaiah guy. But Jesus, yes. So it's in part because I want to take everything that we're going to talk about and say it's rooted in what Jesus says. Having said that, I believe that all of the Bible is inspired and authoritative for us as individuals. Um, and uh, so the first point. That was a quick introduction. The first point. And by the way, um, there's going to be a lot of references. I'm not going to use them all, but when you came in, you might have got a bulletin. In that bulletin is um, an insert. And I think you can find these notes actually on the table as well. But it's our growth group notes. And we use those, those notes um, for our growth groups during the week. And so on one of the pages, there is a, a, a point. All the seven points are there, and there's blanks. And it just allows you to focus and to think a little bit. And you just fill in the blanks, and you take notes as you, <clears throat> as you follow through the, the sermon. Um, and then... The rest of that, uh, the, that folder there is what we used in the midweek in our growth groups. Most of the, uh, the Bible studies that we have during the week are sermon-based growth groups. And so it just helps you discuss various aspects of the sermon. So all of the references that I will make tonight, the important ones, are found in there. So even though I won't mention them um, specifically tonight, you can go and you can look, um, look them up for yourself and see if I've used them properly, if that's where they're found properly in the Scripture. So the first point. What do we believe? If you're going to um, land here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, or you're considering of landing here, or if you've been here for a long time, you've never sort of wrestled this through, what do we believe here? Well, first of all, we believe that the Bible is entirely true. Critical. The Bible is entirely true. Jesus' scriptures were the Old Testament. And when Jesus spoke of the Old Testament, he was absolutely clear, Scripture cannot be broken. And by that, what Jesus meant was that Scripture cannot be annulled. It, it doesn't have a sort of a grandfather clause when it runs out of effectiveness in our lives. It cannot be set aside. We, we cannot take a tradition of men and say, this is more important now than Scripture. And it cannot be broken. And so Jesus had this view that Scripture was absolutely final and eternal for his life and for our lives. Secondly, he would even say that even the smallest letters in the Bible were true. 
Um, you know, we have a phrase once, uh, once in a while when we're going to fill out a contract or something. We say, well, I've got to cross the T's and I've got to dot the I's. What we are, are saying that is precision matters. Because if you don't cross a T, you can mistake it for an L. If you don't dot an I, you can mistake it for an L. Those little marks that we have in the English language, we just have sort of two of them, I think. But if they're not there, they can change the whole way you understand something. And so Jesus says in another place, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all of it is accomplished. In other words, everything that is said in the word of God will come to pass. In fact, this is because for Jesus, whatever scripture says, God says. And Jesus would say again and again for Jesus that, that whatever God said was truth. And it's not something that Jesus just said. It's how he lived his life. A number of weeks ago, when we were in the early part of Luke, we talked about the temptations of Jesus. When Jesus, after he was baptized, it says the Spirit of God led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As he was out there, the devil came along and after 40 days and tempted him in three different ways. You recall, don't you, how Jesus resisted the temptations of the evil one every time. The devil would say this and Jesus said, but it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father. In other words, the way Jesus dealt with the evil one, the, day, the way Jesus dealt with temptation, the way Jesus lived his life was by a total and complete reliance on the scriptures. It's not just a belief either in the inspiration and authority of, of the scriptures, although we believe that. We believe that the scriptures are inspired and we believe that they're authoritative. But we believe more than that. Because if you stop there, it's possible then to say, well, the authority of scripture can change or that it culture can determine how we might understand it in one decade or one century over another century. And inspired, we can say, well, this part really is inspired because we know it, but not necessarily this part. What is absolutely critical to add to the inspiration and authority of Scripture is the inerrancy of Scripture. There are no errors in the Word of God. That is absolutely critical that we understand that. For one wrote, for once biblical inerrancy is abandoned, and it is being abandoned all around us today in churches, once biblical inerrancy is abandoned, there is no break on theological and moral revisionism. The Bible's authority becomes relative, and there is no anchor to hold the church to the words of Scripture and 2,000 years of Christian witness. So, if we are to be faithful to Christ, our church, this church, Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, must be committed to a high view of Scripture. By a high view, we mean that it's inspired, it's authoritative, it is inerrant. And we are to believe what it says, and we are to obey what it says, even when it's difficult. Last week, we considered the church at Sardis here on Sunday night. Uh, the church at Sardis was one of the seven churches, and as Jesus was addressing the church, he said to them, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God and who holds the, uh, the seven um, stars in my right hand. And I, I understand that, and I, I, I express that, that I believe that what Jesus is saying is he is the one who gives the spirit to the church, and he is the one who gives the word to the church through those who are the seven stars. And this particular chart, church, it begins this way. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of life, but you are dead. Why was the church dead? I think 
in a summary form because it was no longer reliant on the Spirit and it was no longer reliant on the Word of God. We abandon the Word of God here and we will be a dead church. We will only have a name. With the Bible, it's really quite simple. If you live, if we live, choosing to accept and reject from the Bible what we want. And there's many people that live like this. Um, some not in, in word, but practically they live like this. If we live choosing to accept and reject the Bible from the Bible what you want, then you have become the final authority rather than the Bible being the final authority in your life. If you live like this, then you have placed yourself above God's word rather than under God's word. To the best of our ability here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, we strive to place ourselves under God's word so that God's word is the authority over our lives. The second point, I think I'll get through this much quicker. Sinners are completely sinful. Sinners are completely sinful. For some, that causes a little bit of discomfort. Um, I can explain just a little bit what I mean when I, when I use that phrase. By this, I don't mean that nobody ever does anything good, decent, kind, moral, or just. Nor do I mean by that that every person is absolutely as evil as they can possibly be. If that were the case, this would be an awful world to live in. But what I do mean by that, and what we mean by that, when that is woven through our statement of faith, what we mean by that is that in all areas of our being, in our body, in our soul, in our mind, in our spirit, in our emotions, we are touched by sin. That it has invaded us, so to speak. It's like a cancer in our whole bodies. And, and, and you say, well, was this really Jesus' perspective? Didn't Jesus see a little bit of good in everybody? Well, if you were here... You know, two weeks ago, we were talking about prayer, and Jesus was teaching about prayer, and just sort of as a, not a throwaway word, because Jesus didn't throw away any words, but just sort of as a passing comment, he was talking about prayer, he looked at his disciples and those that were following him, and he said to them, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, Jesus wasn't even there talking about the nature of men and women, he just made this assumption, this comment, that we are by nature evil. And you say, well, that's slim evidence. Well, this is precise evidence then. In, in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus says this, for from within, what's within? Out of the heart of men and women, listen to this, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I think it was Martin Luther who struggled with his battle with sin and temptation on a regular basis, and he kind of concluded to himself, well, if I can just pull myself away from people in the world and set myself up in, an, uh, in a monastery, I'll be fine. But it wasn't long before in that monastery, he just battled with sin. You know, where does that come from? He realized it came from within. And so Jesus acknowledged that we are sinners within ourselves. From within. There's a famous Pogo um, cartoon. I don't know if any of you read Pogo. I used to read it once in a while. I never remember reading this, but I did go check it out and read it again online. And it's a two-frame cartoon. And uh, uh, it's a, it, the first frame is about this wonderful world that's there. And the second frame is it's absolutely destroyed. 
any pogo turns to the fellow that he's with and he says, we have met the enemy and he is us. And I think that's what we come to realize in scripture, that when we think about ourselves, this is how the Bible describes us. It describes us as those who are completely sinful. And it's until we understand that assessment of ourselves, it's not until we understand that, that we will begin looking for salvation and help outside of ourselves. This is a really important question because it really frames your, your worldview, even your, your view of Scripture, your view of, uh, of mankind, your view of salvation. And it's simply this. Am I a sinner because I sin? Or do I sin because I'm a sinner? Two very, very different starting places. And two questions with considerable, considerably different implications for us. I think here at PFDC, we would say that we sin because we're sinners. That's what Jesus taught. Third point, God is really big. God is, and if I could have you know, put a whole bunch of lines, I would have put God is really, 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 really big. And if we had a whole bunch of time, like two or three or four weeks, I'd love to just go through scriptures after scriptures that, that for us it, it just expand the bigness of God. That song that we learned tonight uh, just helps us understand the bigness of God, the majesty of God, the power of God, the might of God. We see it in creation in Genesis 1 and 2 when God spoke this world into existence. He said, let there be light, and poof, there was light. He said, let there be heavens and earth, and poof, there was heavens and earth. He said, let there be a man and woman, and poof, there was a man and a woman. The power of his word. And then you go to um, Isaiah chapter 42, and you have the Israelites, or the people of Israel, and, 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 and Jesus says to them, or God says to them, and who do you compare me to? And then he just describes himself. Or you go to the personal encounter that Job had with God in, in Job 38 to 41, and there, Job has is, is kind of been wrestling with God and arguing with God. And finally, God says, okay, Job, pull up your pants. We're going for a ride. And it's like God took him for a ride through the universe and showed him his power and his might. I think if there's a one way that I would sum up that God is a really, really, really big God who has revealed himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, I would use the word sovereign. That God is absolutely sovereign. And what do we mean by sovereign? We mean that God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He controls all things. That he, there is nothing in this world, nothing in this universe, anywhere in the farthest reaches of our universe to the smallest atoms that exist in this world. There is nothing that falls outside of the control of God. If there is, then God is not really, really big. Something else is bigger than God. And you'd say, well, does Jesus refer to that? And I said, yeah, he does. There's a couple places, and they're a little bizarre maybe, but I think they, they illustrate this in a, in a unique kind of way. Jesus said this. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? I remember when you could buy two double bubble for a penny. Now you get one double bubble for, a, for, a, for five cents. It's ridiculous. Anyhow, sorry. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies. And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. And then to sort of take it out of the realm of nature and into the personal nature, he says, why? 
Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's Jesus' way of saying God knows everything. Like even this insignificant realities of these, these sort of birds that flutter all over the place and one of them might wipe out or they, they get caught and they get sold. God knows every single one of those birds. And what's more, he knows every single hair on your head. That's a really, really big God. I think that's Jesus' way, as I said, of describing the bigness of God. God is also sovereign over man, and that's a really good thing, because after we have just described ourselves as those who are entirely sinful, we might think, well, we're in really big trouble. And we are. But this is where a really big God comes into help. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He also says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. See, apart from God at work in his Son, we would never be able to come to Jesus. This bothers some people. How is it that I need God to draw, draw me to himself? Don't argue with me. Argue with Jesus. He's the one who said it. But Jesus also beautifully said in this, this wonderful tension in the scripture, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So God is a really, really big God. The fourth point, see we're all getting through them pretty quick. The fourth point is simply this. Another thing that we teach and is summarized in our doctrine and this, this maybe would be the main point if we could say that there's a main point and I don't really want to do that because everything I've said so far is a main point but I would say this, that the cross is absolutely central. The cross is absolutely central. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. Jesus is very, very clear about his purpose for coming to earth. He said there, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I came to die. I came to pay the penalty for your sin. I came so that you in your death might have life through my sacrifice. I mentioned this last Sunday night, and I've still been thinking about it, and I'm bothered by it, but a, a statement that was, uh, that was in our local paper a little while ago that said, Jesus doesn't die in order to make some kind of payment to God, or to satisfy God's wrath, or to pay the penalty for sin. Well, what in the world did Jesus just say then about giving his life a ransom for many? It's absolutely clear in the Scripture, from beginning to end, that Jesus has come to die in our place. The Bible tells us as much. We are dead in our sins. We are entirely sinful. We are captives to sin. And that it was Jesus' death and his ransom price that brought our release from the bondage. There's a passage that we're going to come to in Luke in a little while. Luke chapter 23. And it's the story about, um, about the end of Jesus' trial as, as um, uh, Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate has kind of walked his way through Jesus, and three times he said, I find nothing wrong with this man, and, and he's perplexed, and he, he just wants to get Jesus off of his conscience, and he wants to give him back to the people, and he doesn't want to kill Jesus. And so they had this custom uh, every Passover that they would release to the people one prisoner free. And so Pilate had this great idea. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll offer them Jesus, and for sure they'll take Jesus. They'll want Jesus because he's done nothing wrong after all. And so he goes before the people and he says, after custom, who do you want me to release to you? And they said, we want Barabbas. Some have actually called this the Barabbas theory of atonement. 
Because Barabbas was sentenced to die because he led an insurrection and he had committed murder. And it's a wonderful picture here that Jesus is, is that Barabbas is set free and Jesus takes his place. That Barabbas is let go to the people and Jesus dies instead of him. And that's what we believe here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. We, we, we remind ourselves and we believe that Jesus died for us. That Jesus died in our place. That Jesus died for my sin. That I was guilty, I was convicted, I was doomed to die, and Jesus took my place. That's what we remember every first Sunday of the month when we come to the Lord's table. We remember the Lord's death. Remember that he died in our place. Loved ones, that is absolutely central to what we teach and we believe here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. And I would say this, although I know it would never happen, um, both sides, but I would say this, if I or anyone else ever stood up here or in a small group or anywhere and said that the cross is unnecessary, I hope you would take us out to the back of the church and stone us. It is that serious an offense. And so we believe that the cross is absolutely central to what we teach here. Um, next, and we're almost done. Grace is utterly incredible. And we're, we're moving all over the place to big themes of the Scripture. But another big theme of Scripture is grace. And I have been wrestling with this again these last couple weeks as I've been working my way to this. And grace is one of those things that I really don't understand. Um, I've experienced grace, and I can define grace for you, but it's not a concept that I easily can wrap my head around. We define grace sometimes this way, that grace is um, um, uh, not getting what I, or getting what I don't deserve. That's what we describe as grace. We can go to the scripture sometimes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and we can read how we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God made us alive together in Christ, and it's explained this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Grace is, grace is this amazing reality that, that we deserve punishment, we deserve death, we deserve trouble, we deserve um, um, lack, and in God's mercy... He provides for us what we don't deserve, and he sets us free. He takes justice that we deserve, and he puts it on Christ. And so we don't get what we deserve. It's an astounding reality. And one person came up to me this morning afterwards, church, and says, I think maybe this is the way that I understand grace. We know it a little bit more when we know we need it. Like when you get yourself in a position where, where you're doomed, and you know it, and your only way out is somebody comes along and says, I'll take your place. I'll pay your penalty. I'll erase that, that thing that you've done. I'll forgive you. Whatever it means, they pay the cost of that thing. And I thought, well, that's a movement towards helping me understand it. But I think it's just something that is too, too great for me to wrap my head around. We've seen it in the book of Luke in numerous places as Jesus has taught and demonstrated this. We, we, we think of this, the, the woman of the night, the prostitute that came to Jesus and Jesus forgave her sins poured grace out richly to her. We think of the tax collector, one of the most despised classes of men in that whole society. And Jesus said to them, come, follow me. 
Jesus went and ate with them. Jesus had fellowship with them. Jesus showed them grace. We think of a leper. A leper was just a brutal, it was brutal to have leprosy in those days because you were considered an outcast. You were considered judged by God. You would, you would never feel human touch except from other lepers. And we read of the story, I think it's in Luke chapter 5, of how Jesus came and he touched the leper. It's incredible grace. We're going to read in a couple of months about the thief on the cross. Jesus wasn't crucified alone. There were two people that died with Jesus. Two criminals on either side of him. And as the story begins, both of those criminals are jawing at Jesus. And, and they're both sending insults at him. And they're both, um, they're both uh, you know, um, um, rubbing it in, so to speak. And then it seems that there's this transition that takes place in one of them. Finally, he gets to the point where he says to Jesus, Jesus, would you rem remember me when you die? And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That is absolute and utter grace. And it's my hope, and I've experienced it here, and I hope I continue to experience it here, and it's my prayer for this place, that we would be a place of grace. That we would be a, a place of forgiveness. That we would be a place where we can mess up horribly, and yet we can receive God's grace and the grace of God's people. Grace is utterly incredible. Grace is incredibly attractive. Uh, six. And we sang about this one in that song. I like that one. I, I kind of want to sway sometimes when we sing, Jesus, you'll never let me go. Um, that's not how it, all of it, but that's one of the lines in it. And what I mean by that, or what that song is illustrating, is that disciples, followers of Jesus, are continually secure. We believe that once God brings a sinner to Jesus, Jesus will never turn her away. He will keep her to the end. This doesn't mean that we will never sin, nor does it mean that we will never be tempted, or that tough times will not come our way, and from time to time we might even doubt God's goodness and God's faithfulness to us. But it does mean that the followers of Jesus Christ are secure. He will never, never let me go. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or to use another metaphor, a metaphor of sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There is so much insecurity and so much uncertainty in our world. Oh, it's wonderful to come into the presence of God and to be able to sing with meaning. You will never, never let me go. To know that Jesus will finish what he starts in our life. We believe that. And we teach that here. The final thing um, is this, that life is holy, holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, holy. Jesus is equally clear that those who are his sheep live lives that are set apart from the rest of the world. We're not chameleons. Um, we aren't to blend in with the world. We are to be set apart from the world. You can read Luke chapter 6 and you can find Jesus' words there, a shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about those who are blessed and those who are 
um, in, in, under woe. Those who follow him and those who reject him. In Luke chapter 9, it says this, And he said to all of them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. For the vast majority of us here, our salvation and our faith will be worked out and lived out here in the Oceanside area. A number of weeks ago, uh, I think it was uh, Pastor Barry that preached on this. Maybe it was myself, I can't remember. But it was Jesus who cast the demons out of a man. He got, the man was, was overtaken by demons. He was uncontrollable. And Jesus came and just prayed for him and cast the demons out. The demons went in the pigs. The pigs went in the water and he was free. At the end of it all, the man comes to Jesus as Jesus is getting ready to leave. And he says, Jesus, let me come with you. Jesus, I want to, I want to be with you. I want, to be, I want to be one of your disciples. I want to follow you. And you might remember what Jesus said to him. Jesus said to him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. I love that. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. We've just come off a great month of missions here at the church. Um, we had uh, five different Sundays and uh, missionaries, um, a few of them have gone directly from our church, others that our church has supported. And, 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 and we had a wonderful time of getting to know them, hearing from them, of, and even receiving an offering for them. And by the way, we, re, we, we received, I think it was $13,500 plus for the missionaries. Outstanding. Thank you for your generosity to them. And that's going to be divided up between the missionaries for extra stuff that is beyond their budget. But sometimes we have this notion that missionaries are super people. And somehow they're super Christians that somehow they are able to live and do things that us normal Christians don't want to do or can't do or aren't expected to do. I don't find that at all in what Jesus said. We all have different tasks. And Jesus said here very specifically to that man, he says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. I think this is Jesus' way of reminding us that all of life is holy. That even when we go to our own homes, we are to live out the faith and the life that we find in the Bible and that Christ has set the example for us. That we are to serve God, speak of God in every area of our life. And Jesus is concerned about every single area of our life. Remember, God is a really, really big God. And there is nothing that is outside of his area of concern or his area of control. And so whether we're in business or politics, whether we are in economics or education, whether we are in science or whether we're concerned about sex, whether it's history, art, affliction, whether we're in music, marriage, plumbing, whether we're a pastor, it doesn't really much matter. All of that engagement is to be holy before God. All of life is to be holy before God. So even when you play with your two-year-old, even when you do the dishes, even when you change the oil in your car, even when you go fishing on your boat. All of that is to be done in a way that is honoring and pleasing and holy to God. Jesus said, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, again, it's like the sparrow and the hare thing. It's like saying there's nothing outside of God's purview. And so he says, whether you eat or drink, anything we do, everything we do is to be done to the glory of God. Nothing is outside of that sphere of concern that we live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God. And in fact, in Colossians, Jesus 
where Paul says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. So all of life is meant to be lived in honor to God and in glory of God's name. Those are just a few of the, the ways that I would summarize what we believe and what we teach here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. We believe the Bible is entirely true. We believe that sinners are completely sinful. We believe that um, God is really big. We believe that the cross is absolutely central. We believe that grace is utterly incredible. We believe that disciples are wholly secure. And we believe that life is wholly holy. That's what we teach. That's what we embrace. That's what you will hear week after week, we hope, and month after month here from this church. Welcome back to Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a few moments together tonight to look at your word and to reflect on it, to uh, consider it in a kind of a different way than we would normally do week after week. And yet it's helpful, I think, sometimes to know where we stand and for people to hear where we stand. For some might have had some questions or they might have had some concerns about what it is that we actually believe and what it is that we put our weight behind. Father, these things all matter. They're all found in your word. And so I pray that uh, tonight as we leave here and as we head home, maybe even as we're talking together, we will reinforce these truths amongst ourselves and we will commit to them as leaders and as teachers and as um, uh, parishioners and um, members of this body that we would see your name glorified in all that we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.